Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the Lord's House today for worship. Today we're celebrating the Reformation, something that happened 500 years ago. Why? Somebody once said recently, America learns history with World War II as if we think that's old. But we're celebrating something 500 years old today. Because 500 years ago, through some German people, one in particular named Martin Luther, God gave the gospel back to the people and let us see exactly what he had done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's something to celebrate today and for the rest of our lives and to share with our kids and grandkids too. Our order of service is found in your worship folder. Let's begin with our opening hymn, the Reformation Song. Through faith alone we come to you, 
name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Confession has two parts. The one is that we confess our sins. The other, that we receive absolution or forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Not doubting, but firmly believing sins are thus forgiven before God in heaven. Let us confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have placed other gods before you. We have failed to fear, love, and trust in you above all things. We humbly ask that for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us so that we may delight and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. By the authority of Christ, I forgive you your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Lord, our refuge and strength, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep them steadfast in your word. Protect and comfort them in all temptations. Defend them against all their enemies. And bestow on the church your saving peace. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Please be seated.
Today, with the Reformation focus, we're looking at how God turns the tables and keeps them that way through the teaching of the Reformation. First lesson from 1 Kings chapter 18. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. That's 3 p.m. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. 
They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. The word of the Lord. Continue with the psalm of the day. Second lesson from Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. The Word of the Lord. Choir comes for the anthem.
stand for the gospel. The sermon is based on these words from John 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Please be seated.
congregation may be seated. Grace and peace are yours from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, fellow believers. The lesson for the gospel today reads more like the next movie script for the Incredible Hulk movie than it does for the actions of the Son of God, doesn't it? Zeal consumed Jesus. There's an intensity that comes from his eyes as he's doing these things. I imagine his muscles throughout his body just tensed up as he flexed his arms and turned one table over, one after the next. I, I read that it was illegal to bring any kind of weapon into the temple area, which is why Jesus takes materials readily available and he fashions a whip. And look at what he does with it. He drives all of these ridiculous animals out of there. And these salesmen squatters who are on their father's property conducting business that had nothing to do with their fathers, they get pushed out of there as well. And a shout comes from Jesus' mouth. Not like the green guy, because you can understand the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Get these out of here. He lays this sin right on the conscience of these offending vendors. Get these things out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? What's striking to me is not just the actions that Jesus took and that nobody opposed him. Nobody stood against him. Those vendors knew they were in the wrong and they had no business conducting their business there in front of their Heavenly Father's house. But what strikes me equally is nobody lifted a finger to help. You don't hear about his disciples joining him. My guess is they were standing off on the side, wide-eyed, oh my goodness, we're not used to seeing Jesus like this. Even they, it looks like, didn't lift a finger to help him. There's a Latin phrase for what Jesus did. It's called contramundum. Against the world is what it means. Jesus stood against the world. He stood against the general opinion of the day. He stood against the religious apparatus, the leaders, and even the people of his day who maybe understood something's not right here, but we're too timid and afraid to actually step up and say something, and so we're just going to go with the flow. Kind of makes you wonder why Jesus did it, though. This tremendous show of force, because about three years later in Holy Week, the day after Palm Sunday, he would do it a second time. Which means this didn't last. Those salesmen, those vendors, brought their figurative, irreligious pigsty probably the very next day, right back into those very positions, and they did the same thing over again. And actually, the world has been doing the same ever since. 
God sets up his house of grace where he wants to interact with people and teach them his word and his ways. And what does man say? Huh, I think I can improve on this. I think I can do this better. God, I think I can help you out a little bit. And so man begins to set up shop in so many ways. And so we'll add a few religious traditions here. Throw in a few scriptural additions over there. And just for good order, how about a few superstitions will mix right into it. And so all of a sudden the world gets things like purgatory, where the Bible never talks about any such foolish concept. Or worship of relics, a slice of somebody's hair, a piece of wood from the cross. Or maybe then we get prayers to the saints instead of prayers to Jesus. And then we get things like indulgences and you can pay for your people to advance through the afterlife and maybe, maybe one day finally get into heaven. Or maybe you get this 10-cent word called sacerdotalism. You're not going to remember that most likely after this, but it means instead of a believer getting to go right to Jesus and talk to Jesus and worship Jesus, you first have to come to a pastor or a priest. You still need a middleman because you, you need to stay away from God. You need somebody else to do this for you yet. Just like in the Old Testament. And so man invents all of these ways and, and over time and what happens? No matter what kind of tables and obstacles they put in the way, it never improves the situation from what God started with. If anything, it makes it worse. And all of a sudden, God's house has turned into a market. It's turned into a circus. It's turned into a joke. It turns terrible. These are the exact same tables Martin Luther inherited in his day too. They just had different table coverings. And so what Martin Luther did in his day, 500 years ago, was the exact same thing Jesus did. Martin Luther just spoke the word of God. He spoke the word of God, whether on paper, and he wrote voraciously, incredible things. Or whether in person, Martin Luther counseled and he taught classes over and over again. Or he taught the word of God from the pulpit. And he preached over and over again and straightened a lot of things out. Martin Luther was actually a reflection of Jesus in that so often in his life, Luther as well stood contramundum. He stood against the world. He stood against the Pope on his own. He stood against emperor. He stood in debates against other people who are just teaching foolish things. But so often he's on his own. And one guy I'd like to bring up today from the past that Luther had to deal with was a guy named Erasmus. Erasmus was a Greek scholar. He did a lot to put the Bible text for us together. And so he did a wonderful thing that way. But being a Greek scholar does not make somebody a good theologian and represent God well. And so Erasmus was a, a Greek scholar, but a terrible theologian. He was a man of peace who loved peace. And so he just wanted everybody to play nice, speak nice, get along nice. All he wanted was outward peace, even if it meant compromising the scriptures. And so I hope you see Erasmus is the kind of guy who is never going to turn the tables on the authority of God's word. Erasmus was the kind of guy who wanted to just rearrange the tables and redecorate these things a little bit. There's a little bit of a 
a biting commentary that called Erasmus a shrewd but a shallow man. A cool, calculative man, but not a man of burning conviction. And the reason why I'm going in depth a little bit on, on Erasmus is I'm, I'm pointing out Erasmus would never be the kind of guy to stand contramundum. He would never be the guy to stand on the authority of God's word against the world because he wanted to be liked. He wanted to rub elbows with the hoity-toity. When you get people like that in life, whether scholars or pastors or priests, who just want to be liked and they don't represent the word of God, all they're looking for then is outward change. They're just looking at the externals and they're not after spiritual change done by the word of God, by the hand of God, the Holy Spirit. And if somebody's like that, all they're looking at doing is changing the externals and not after a change of the heart, they're not going to change anything. And actually, there were reformers that came, that came prior to Martin Luther, but all they were for is changing the externals, which is why their reforms never lasted and never changed. That's not what Martin Luther was about. And that's why the Lord blessed his. He was a man after the heart. And, and yet, in Luther's day, this, this guy named Erasmus, he published something for all of Europe to read and see, all of the people, the scholars. And finally, the, the other Lutherans in Luther's camp pressed on Martin Luther, look, you've got to address this. You, you've got to deal with what's come up. And Luther responded by writing this incredible, it's an in-depth scholarly book called The Bondage of the Will. And if you read this, it's an echo of, it's an echo of Jesus. It's blunt, it's direct, it's zeal for his father's house. And you can really hear Jesus through this say, get these things out of here, this drivel. But Luther used his own words. Here's a little, a little part of it. Erasmus, you always think, or pretend to think, that men's ordinances can be observed together with the word of God without risk. But you're still in ignorance. I must tell you again, men's ordinances cannot be observed together with the word of God because the ordinances of God bind consciences and the word frees them. Martin Luther got it. We don't need any more tables set up in the, word of God, in the house of God or outside the house. We don't need any more obstacles. We don't need any ordinances. We don't need any more boundaries set up. Even if people are well-intentioned. We just need to let the house of God speak for itself. Because here in the house of God, God set up his own table. And God offered his own son. By grace. And God sets the table for sinners. By letting sinners feast on salvation that he freely gives on his own authority. Not on any authority of man. And so here for sinners in the house of God is, technically speaking, the righteousness that comes from God that is for sinners, that is for free for you by faith in Jesus Christ. You can imagine 
where the word of God or the Reformation puts God back in his rightful place and puts man in his place, that's not necessarily going to be well received by people who still want to have control over others. And so what did the people do back in Jesus' day in our lesson? They gathered together. The leaders gathered together as one. And they came up to Jesus in force, trying to intimidate him. And what did they say? Give us a sign. You understand what they're asking for? Jesus, put it smack dab right between our eyes, right in front of our faces. What gives you this authority and right to do these things? To come before us, to overturn these tables, make it plain and clear as day today, or as clear before our eyes, that you are right to do this. And so Jesus gave them the most incredible answer. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Do you understand what he's saying? He's not just saying, I'm going to rise from the dead, though that is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to turn the tables on you even after I die. This This was just an outward thing here to honor my father. But there's a deeper one coming. And so he telegraphed it completely to them. He said, I know you're going to take this down. I know you're going to destroy my life. I know you're going to put me on a cross. I know you are coming after me. And I'm telling you, I'm already aware of it. Destroy this temple and you think you're going to get the upper hand and you're going to turn the tables on me. Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to flip the narrative. After I die, I'm coming back. I'm going to rise from the dead and there's nothing you can do. Jesus didn't just hold before them the authority of the word of God, though he did. He held before them the heart of the word of God, the resurrection from the dead. And he held it out before them to see. And they knew what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about himself. And they still ignored it. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that would turn the tables for sinners and they still would ignore that sign. Martin Luther, in his day, spoke with authority as well. He had a keen wit. He, had, he could have a pointed, sharp pen as well. And he certainly had that towards Erasmus when he responded to Erasmus. What's interesting is that Too many people across Europe and still since just see Martin Luther as some bombastic or boorish German. And they kind of miss the whole point. And so somebody one time went up to Erasmus and said, look Erasmus, what's Luther's sin? Where did Luther go wrong? Why are you so upset with Luther? And supposedly this was Erasmus' response. He said, Martin Luther has sinned greatly. For he has attacked the monks in their belly and the Pope in his crown. What? Do you see for Erasmus, it it was all superficial stuff. He attacked the monks in their belly and the Pope in his crown. He completely missed the supernatural. He completely missed the fact that God had provided a Savior for sinners in Jesus Christ. He completely missed the fact that on Good Friday, God took the sins of the world, yours and mine included, and he put it on square on the back of Jesus Christ. 
And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and that's the proof. That's the sign they were asking for. And it's still the sign that God hangs right before our eyes. And even though Erasmus missed it, with clarity and conviction, Martin Luther brought this before the people of his day and the people of God. And he stood on it. He brought them the authority of the Word of God and he brought them Easter, the resurrection from the dead and the power of God for sinners as proof that God has turned the tables. And the Reformation still does this. The Reformation still brings this out to the people of God as we celebrate it today. Did you see what happened in our text? What happened after Easter? Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead and, and he made appearances and he appeared to the disciples in the upper room. But there's a little foreshadowing in our lesson of something very, very important. It said, after Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples remembered his words. And they believed. <laughs> Do you understand what the Reformation has given to us? The Reformation takes that word of God and it puts it in the heads and hands and hearts of the people so that they're his disciples. So that we remember Jesus, what he said and what he did. And the Spirit works through that in internal change. So that we believe Him. So that we have clean consciences in the face of God. So that we know we have the fullness of the forgiveness of sins. It's ours for free. And so that we know without a doubt what is coming our way. The gates of heaven are open to us and nothing can stop Satan. It's completely ours. This treasure, and it works in us an attitude that that loves the scriptures. It loves to go to Bible study. It loves to study these things and read them in the home. It loves even to shape an attitude in us that has zeal for God so that even we stand contra mundum. The scriptures work in us. A love for the house of God. A love to be here with the people of God. After all, this is where the authority of God's word is. This is where the power of the resurrection is presented to the people of God that we too will rise from the dead. God has turned the tables for us in Christ Jesus. And by hanging and holding on to these things, that's exactly the way we want to keep it. Amen. Please stand. We join together in confessing our faith with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated for the hymn. Let us pray to the Lord, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, beseeching him to have mercy on us and to hear us. 
Lord God, while we travel as pilgrims here on earth, give us comfort in the knowledge that you have called us to be your disciples through water and the word. In the midst of difficult times, when waters roar and foam and mountains tremble, give us confidence in knowing that we've been set free by the Son, and so we're free indeed. The Lord of hosts is with us. God, as your children, we are called to love you, our neighbor, and even our enemy. Give us willing hearts to love our neighbor as ourselves because you first loved us. The Lord of hosts is with us. God, you are greater than the one who is in the world, prowling and seeking to devour us. Deliver us from the old evil foe, knowing that he cannot harm us because he's been defeated by your son's death and resurrection. Give us strength to resist Satan and keep us firm in the faith you have given us. The Lord of hosts is with us. God, your Son, bought us with his lifeblood as the price. In him we're set free from sin, death, and the power of the devil. By your Holy Spirit working through your word, preserve us in the one true faith, that we might abide in you until you bring us to the place you've prepared for us in your house. The Lord of hosts is with us. <laughs> 